Good morning. That one's weak. Let's try again. Good morning. That's better. I mean, we're not going to make you do anything else. The rest of the time you can sit there, but um, we're picking up on the third of four series uh, on a summary, the big picture of the Bible. And as we look at it, the, the concept is, is that we, we did a, a couple of chapters that just reminded us of Genesis, of how the entire thing began. And then last week, Zach did the entire Old Testament. This morning, the goal is to do the entire New Testament. And then Darren will come back for the last two of just two chapters. Now, if you're thinking to yourself, what's up with that? Why does he make the other guys do entire whole sections of scripture? And he does just two chapters you just take that up with him. I, I, you know, it's hard for him to move through the Bible at that kind of speed. So uh, Zach and I, don't, don't, we don't hesitate to just go through it. Um, look, here's the deal. We're jumping into this concept that we're going to cover a ton. We can't possibly do everything that is there. So the, the concept of the big picture is just to remind us, after we spent so much time in Genesis and we focused on the, the, the details of people's lives, that we wanted to step back and go, how does that book sit with the rest of the big picture? And that simple uh, answer is just that God in the beginning created the earth. He created mankind, humanity, so that he could have a relationship with us and we could have a relationship with him. That begins in Genesis, but as you remember, that relationship is broken fairly early on when Adam and Eve sin in the garden, and that broken relationship, that sin, causes that brokenness between a holy God, and then throughout that time, God moves towards man, he moves towards Adam and Eve, restores them, but then starts all over again, and then man all throughout the Old Testament is just this series of trying again and again to make their relationship right with God. They try to do well, but then they sin. Then they try to do well and they fall off. They try to do well, they stumble. That story has gone on since that very first time in the garden. And that's the story. I don't know about you, but if you guys have ever had teenagers, you've noticed, and nothing against these teenagers, we just applauded you. We think you guys are wonderful. But there are other teenagers who take long showers. Anyone? Anybody have met them? The concept is just this. When I was a teenager, I remember standing in the shower and taking the shampoo and, and you know, you're shampooing. It feels really good. But the, the concept is you're reading the label and the directions are right there. And it says, take some of the shampoo, lather it up and then rinse and then repeat. And so you take some shampoo, you lather it up, you rinse, and then it says repeat. And so then you take some shampoo, you lather it up, you rinse, and then you repeat. And you're stuck in this endless loop until the water turns cold in the shower and you eventually get out. That's a little bit of the concept here of what mankind has been doing since the garden, right? It's that stumble, repent, repeat, stumble, repent, repeat. This is us. This is our life as human beings. We're flawed in this and we can't actually move forward. We're stuck in this cycle by ourselves. And this is the story as it goes in the Old Testament and what God does throughout that process. Our youngest son, Edward, um, he, 
he, uh, when he was little, he couldn't swim and had not yet learned how to swim. And so we took all of our kids to the swimming pool one day and there's all kinds of people there. It's a pool that has a shallow three foot section. And then it goes all the way deep where there's diving boards. So it's got, you know, 10, 11, 12 feet. I don't know how deep it was at that end. But the older kids love to go down to the diving board, jump in, swim to the bottom, do all the things in the deep end. And Edward was young enough, not knowing how to swim. He didn't have any floaties or anything like that. So we told him he has to stay in the shallow end. You just got to stay down here where your feet can touch the bottom and you can keep your head out of the water because that's sometimes important if you're a human and you need to breathe. So Edward would be just right down in the shallow end and Eugenie and I are just sitting on the deck and we're watching the kids play. But Edward would keep trying to go down to the deep end because that's where all his friends were. It's where his brother and sisters were and he wanted to be in the deep end. And so we would tell him, no, you can't go. And he'd come back to the shallow end. He'd try again. No, you can't go. And then I look away for a second. He jumps out of the pool. He goes over to the pool deck on the side away from us so that he could be away from me, who he knew would stop him. And he started running down to the deep end. So as fast as I can, I go running down the side and I catch him just before he jumps into the deep end. And I'm like, Edward, Edward, don't, don't do that, man. You can't swim. This is not good. And he's like, oh, but I want to be in there with everybody else. And I'm like, no, man, if you jump in, you're going to drown. And he looks up at me and he says, ah, oh, dad, I'll try not to drown. So I said, okay. And I went back to Eugenie and we just let him go. No, that's not what we did. And it's not what God does with us. There's this point where he knows what we're not capable of doing and he moves towards us to save us. And this is the story of the New Testament. So as we jump into this entire picture, this big picture of what's going on, the concept is going to be repeated because we keep repeating what we do. But we're going to start with that verse that we read about We're heirs to the promise. And so to to anchor that down, we want to talk about what the promise is. So if you've got your Bibles, turn to Genesis 12. And in the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, this is the old thing. We're about to move into the New Covenant in the New Testament. But this this begins with this promise to Abraham. Uh, Genesis 12, verses 1 and 2. Now the Lord said to Abraham, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to that land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. This is the promise to Abraham and Abraham goes by faith. It was reckoned unto Abraham as righteousness because he went to the land that he didn't even know. God said, go, he went. That faith, belief in God is what Abraham believed in. And because of that faith, God stops and says, I am giving you a promise. And this is the promise, this promise of a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. But this great nation, you're going to have many with you. That's what launches the entire Old Testament at that point to to move these things forward and with the promise that we inherit. Now, as we jump into the New Testament and how it inherits this or how it interprets this, how it takes that promise forward, I want to just kind of defang the New Testament for a second. 
Because in part, when you look at the New Testament, it can be a bit overwhelming. It has in it some terms and theological ideas and concepts that are very, very difficult to to grab a hold of. So I wrote down a short list, just simply top of mind, the kind of things we could study if we were going to study the New Testament because of the things that are in here. Words like sanctification, propitiation, justification, imputation, glorification, or transfiguration. And those are all nestled neatly alongside of soteriology, eschatology, the hypostatic union. We rarely spend much time talking about annihilationalism, which I'm glad, and infralapsarianism, prevenient grace, complementarianism, cessation, or the theological arguments. Aren't you glad we skipped that this morning, right? That's all in the New Testament. But when we talk about this, even though those ideas are there, we're not going to spend time this morning unpacking each of those. Now, with it are also difficult themes. And we know this, that the New Testament is loaded. So I've got a small list for that as well. Because you've got these difficult ideas like speaking in tongues, the virgin birth, rising from the dead, baptism, the Trinity, free will and election, or even head coverings, healings, the day of Pentecost, physical descriptions of heaven and hell are in the New Testament. And for good measure, the New Testament once again brings up this whole idea of circumcision as if that wasn't enough in the Old Testament. We should have just left that there. But there it is. Those concepts are in the New Testament. We don't have time to go through all of those. So what we're going to do is simplify the entire thing. And by that, I just simply mean, first and foremost, the idea that the New Testament is nothing more than 27 books. The first four of which are simply four different accounts of Jesus's life. We call those the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. It's four different people that tell their story of what they saw and observed of Jesus's life and words. That's the first four books. The next book, the book of Acts, is simply the story of the church. That after Christ left the earth, he left the church to do his work and to move the kingdom forward. And he did that through the church. So the first part of the launch of the church is in in the book of Acts. First four, Jesus' life. The next one is the beginning of the church. It's followed by 13 letters, letters to the churches. That's just simply it, that because the church is launched, so Christ comes, he gives word to the church. The church of the Acts is the story of the church. Then from there, the apostles write out letters to the churches, and those are 13 of those letters. And then following is Revelations, which is the very end time. That, by the way, is what Darren will be picking up. He's going to be covering the last two chapters of Revelation next week. You're going to want to hear that. So that's the entirety of the New Testament. It's not that hard, right? It makes sense. It's the story of Jesus, the story of the church, letters to the church, and Revelation. That's it. That makes that simple. As we jump into this, though, this concept of what the New Testament does is far more powerful than just this little document. When we give that phrase of theology in terms, the goal of the New Testament is not to be your handbook on theology. It does that, but that's not its primary role. Instead, I don't know about you, but have you ever had those moments where you're moving along and for whatever reason, something happens in your head where you realize you're alive. Anybody recognize that yet, that you're alive? Yeah, this idea, and it's kind of a weird thought if you think about it. Where did I come from? How did I get here? Because, you know, people said I was born, but I don't remember that. 
at some certain point, I became conscious that I was alive and I don't even sure I remember that moment, but suddenly I go through my life and I'm living my days and it's like, what is this place? How did I get here? Where am I going? That question sometimes just makes it really difficult for me to think about because it's just like, how, how do I know that any of this is, is real and true? In fact, some philosophers might even tell you that, that the reality is, is that everything is just a figment of your imagination. It's a dream you're having. You're sort of living this waking dream. So I think that that's probably true, that this morning, it's only me up here. You don't exist. You're all a figment of my imagination. That's the kind of thing where you look at it and go, well, that's not true because I've had conversations with some of you. You've talked to me and you're thinking I'm a figment of, we, we could get crazy in our head if we try to figure out what in the world is this world about unless something doesn't come along and tell us this is how you got here. This is where you fit in the picture of eternity. This is what we mean when you have a soul. And everything from truth to values to instructions on how to do marriage, how to do parenting, how to do your finances, those are in here. There's guidelines and values that are in the book, but the book stops and reaches out and says there's things you can't know about. And God himself wants to instruct us on how we do this life. That's what scripture is. As we get into the New Testament particularly, there's, a, there's one theme that shows up and we read it at first with that very first passage when we did the scripture reading. So again, if you've got your Bibles, turn back to Galatians and we're gonna jump into Galatians 3 because here is where that promise that was promised to Abraham is now passed on to us. And it's like, all right, I sort of understood what Abraham had, that because he believed God, he was going to have many, many kids, many grandkids, many great grandkids, and he would be a great nation. That's great for Abraham. Why does it matter to us? Galatians 3, and we're going to jump in uh, right about, let's see, 24. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came, the Old Testament in order that we might be justified by faith, like Abraham. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian, the law, the Old Testament. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For many of you were baptized into Christ, have, been put, have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus." And if you are Christ, if you are one in Christ Jesus and you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring. You're one of the offspring that God promised, heirs according to the promise. You're heirs according to the promise. You have inherited what was promised to Abraham. Now, Abraham, when he thought this promise came, he's thinking about it of kids, grandkids, great grandkids, that kind of a thing. But that's not what God meant. So I've made a graph that shows a little bit of what this intended. This is the concept. The little blue slice of the pie, and it's actually exaggerated there because it's much, much smaller in scale. But at that point, that represents the Jews, the children, the grandchildren, the great-grandchildren that are living right now. There are 15 million Jews on the earth, roughly moving around the earth. 
But on the other side, that would have been how Abraham understood. That was his, his generation, his nations. The reality, what God was talking about is that by your faith, you are going to be the father of a much larger generation. And that's us. That's all the rest. There's 2.4 billion people who confess to be Christians and say, I follow the name of Jesus Christ. That's what God was talking about. That's just those that are alive right now. That's the principle that as we jump into this, that we then are the heirs. We are the offspring of Abraham by his faith and by our faith. We're now his, his offspring. That's the concept. So in Ohio, there's this girl, her name's Kara Wood. She's 17 years old. She's a waitress working at this little diner. And as she's working away, she's trying to save money for college. She's, she's trying to be a good waitress. This older guy in his 80s comes into the diner and he sits down. And the next day he comes back to the diner. He sits down and he orders lunch and he orders dinner. He comes back for dinner. And the next day he's there for breakfast and he orders breakfast and he orders lunch. He comes back for dinner and he keeps coming back day after day. And she notices that he seems sad. He seems a bit depressed. And so at that point, she begins to ask questions and finds out that he is in his mid eighties and his wife has just passed away. They had been married for over 60 years. She passes away. She had done everything for him. She had cooked his meals. She had cleaned the house. She had been his lover. She had been his friend. She had been everything in his life and she had passed away. So he found the house to be lonely. And so he would come out and he would just simply go to the diner. And this 17 year old girl, Kara, began to just simply befriend him, to care for him, to hear the stories. She stopped by his house one day and saw that it was unkept. And she decided to start cleaning the house. And she started taking care of him, making sure that there was stuff in the fridge and stuff that wasn't outdated in the fridge. And she just started to love on him. Well, long story short, within a few months, he too passes away. And shortly after that, she finds out that before he passed away, he changed his will and left his entire estate to her. To Kara Wood, 17-year-old waitress, this concept of inheriting what was this man's, that is not what we're talking about here, right? She got, he had $500,000 plus the house. She got $500,000 because she was nice, not because she was the offspring, not because she was related, but because she had been kind to him. That is not what we're talking about in this promise. Instead, there's a second gal. Her name is Eva. And Eva lives in Argentina and she's a maid. Her mom has died years ago, so she has no family and she is just simply working away. She never knew who her dad was. She's doing everything she can to just simply survive. And as she's working, she's trying to set aside money, but it just seems like life is taking her further back and she's getting poorer by the day. Well, then one day there's a gentleman who dies. He was a wealthy landowner, a land baron, and he passes away. And after he passes away, somebody comes up to Eva and says, Eva, we couldn't tell you why he was alive, but that man is your father. And he has left you this estate. They said, we have to prove it first. So they took DNA. They took the DNA and proved it. Sure enough, she was his daughter and she inherited $40 million. That 
is much, much closer to what we're talking about here. It's the idea that there's nothing Eva did to inherit that, 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 um, all that wealth. Everything that was promised to the heir of this gentleman came to her because she was the offspring. When we read this and it says, and if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. This is the concept that plays out. That we then, because of faith, are now his offspring and then we are heirs to the promise. Now, this thing that if you are Christ is at the very center of the entire New Testament. So what we're about to do, and this is going to scare some of you. But what we're about to do is I'm about to show you five sermons in the New Testament. We're going to, there's five different sermons that are preached and we're going to go through those five. And you're like, look, buddy, yours is long enough as it is. Can you not add somebody else's? But we're going to go very quickly through this of just simply what is the center of this New Testament of this whole story as it lays out. So the first one, if you've got your Bibles, turn to Matthew 1. And the first one is the story of just simply Joseph when he finds out that his betrothed Mary, they're not married, they have not slept together, they've not had any relations, but Joseph finds out that Mary's pregnant and God sends an angel to kind of take Joseph down off the ledge to stop and say, wait a minute, there's a plan going on, don't panic here. And in the middle of that story, the angel gives a sermon And I want you to see the sermon here. This is verse 21 of Matthew 1. And the angel says, she will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. That's it. The whole sermon. That concept right there is the New Testament. She will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. Remember the whole story, our sin, our brokenness, try, fail, try, fail, try, fail. That sin, that brokenness, Jesus shows up. This angel comes in and says, you'll name him Jesus because this is what he's going to do. And the entire sermon is he will save his people from their sins. Sermon number two. Sermon number two is Jesus, when he talks to Nicodemus, one of the the spiritual teachers, this is John three, and this is that story of the very first Nick at night, when Jesus comes to Nicodemus and he tells this whole sermon right here. You know it probably from the, the one verse, John 3.16. We're going to grab a couple verses before and just after. But listen to what Jesus has to say about this same concept. Verse 14 of John 3. And as Moses lifted up the servant, serpent in the wilderness, so must the son of man be lifted up. And he's referring to himself there. He is the son of man. So must the son of man be lifted up on the cross that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world. This is Jesus himself talking about himself. God did not send me into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. There's a sermon by Jesus. Then Luke 23, Jesus is on the cross. There's a a criminal, a thief on both sides of him. They're all being put to death, being crucified. And right there in uh, Luke 23, we get a sermon from one of the, the thieves, literally. 
Verse 39, one of the criminals who were hanged railed at Jesus saying, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him saying, do you not fear God? Since you are under the same sentence of condemnation and we indeed justly. So what I love about this is that the the thief stops and realizes who he is in this picture and says, what are you doing mocking God? We're the ones on the cross that actually deserved it. We have sinned. How many of you here have sinned? Yeah, a couple aren't raising your hands. You're lying. Now you've just sinned. You can't get away with that one. You got to realize it's coming. But that's the case. This, guy, this thief stops and recognizes it. Verse 41, we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, truly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. I love the way that Alistair Begg, a pastor from, from Ohio, the way he talks about this, he tells this story, is he talks about the, the thief that at that moment when he dies, he finds himself in heaven and right there at the pearly gates, the angels come up. This isn't a joke. This is, this is the, the take on it, that the angel comes up to him and says, hey, uh, how'd you get in here? And he's like, I'm not sure. And he's like, well, you know, can you explain, uh, give a little bit of your testimony, maybe something about your sanctification. And he's like, I have no idea what you're talking about. And he says, can you give me the doctrine of justification? I don't know what that means. Do you know a Bible verse? No, I, I don't know any Bible verses. How in the world did you get here? This is crazy. And the thief just stops and says, the man on the middle cross said I could come. Is that not beautiful? That that's the whole story in a nutshell, that the man on the middle cross said we could come. It's not about what we know. It's not about what we do. It's not about any of that. It's about what Jesus does in the middle of this. And even the thief gives a sermon and says, we've sinned, we deserve this. He did not. His flawlessness then becomes the perfect covering of all of our sin. That's beautiful. A couple more really quick. Um, Peter, on the day of Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit comes and actually indwells all believers for the first time, Peter is teaching, and this is out of Acts 2. We're going to jump in at verse 22. And Peter says, men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus... He delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosening the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by death. That even Jesus himself, God brought him out. He had victory over death. And now we'll skip down a few verses. Um, In verse 37, the people who are listening stop and say, brothers, what shall we do in verse 37? And then in verse 38, Peter goes on and says, this is what you should do. You should repent and be baptized. So when we show a video about baptism, that's one of the things that Peter even said. Now that Christ has done this work, there are things you can do. Stop sinning, be baptized. It's not about your salvation. This is after that price has been paid. 
But then what's the response? And Peter says, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit for the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off. He meant to us. He meant you that are far off generations down the line. Everyone for whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them saying, save yourselves from this crooked generation. Peter gives a sermon and it once again is the story of Jesus and everything he's done. One last one. This is the fifth sermon. So that wasn't so painful. Here we go into the fifth and final one. This is Romans 6 verse uh, 23. And this is where uh, Paul just simply says, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. If we take the New Testament, you find right in the middle of it, everything is about the person of Jesus Christ, who he is, that when God created us because he wanted a relationship with us, this holy God, we then sinned and became unholy in order for us to have a relationship. God moved again and again and again to restore us, even to the point of sending his son. That's the story of the New Testament. It's why there's gospels. It's why it's the story of the, of the church. It's why it all lays out. This God who made us, a holy God, A God who pursues us, a God who loves us. In contrast with us, creatures, we've been made, we're not even sure how we got here, right? That picture, sinful, broken, even the thief on the cross knows that. And then when we find God pursuing us, we run from him, we hide from him, we avoid him because we're ashamed and embarrassed of some of the things we've done. And we do it over and over again. That's the God who pursues us and still loves us even in that. That's the story of the New Testament. That's what we're talking about here. Our role, what should we do about that? Peter had a couple of words, repent, be baptized. But the number one thing I would encourage you this morning is if you're avoiding God and you're trying to get to God or you're trying to do things to please God, tap out. Tap out and give up. Go into his arms, pick up his word and say, God, I am yours and become his servant. To simply say, I am all yours. Scripture talks about it. That is what the New Testament is there for. But remember, Kara, that 17-year-old waitress, she, she got that particular inheritance because she was nice. This concept, though, that if every waitress was just nice, every waitress would be rich, just isn't true, right? It's not true with us either. Just by you trying to be good isn't going to get you anywhere. It is literally the belief in who Jesus is and what he has done for you. We are heirs. We have inherited it. It's not ours because we we claim it because of something we did. It's all in what he did. And we are all one in Christ. I want to close with an illustration that's uh, a video that we're going to watch in just a second. Short little clip of a Dodgers game. And I know that it's dangerous to bring sports analogies into church because not everybody loves sports or even understands the games. So I'm going to set it up just enough so that you can understand it. Note that it's not going to be important that you get all the rules of the game. You're going to understand what happens in just a second. But this game happened just a few weeks ago. The Dodgers were playing the San Francisco Giants. 
and they have a rivalry. It's a very heated rivalry, and the fans don't love each other. The teams don't love each other. They've gone head-to-head against each other for years. So it's, it's always a, a pretty intense game when the two play. But right now, it's not so much because the Dodgers are doing very well. They're ahead in their division, and the Giants, no, they're not. <laughs> they're doing miserably. In fact, uh, just because I gave this illustration in the first service, one, there was one Giants fan in the crowd, and I think he left his jacket in here, you know, for lost and found. He didn't care about the, the Giants anymore. That's the way it goes. Here's the story. The score at the bottom of the eighth inning, there are nine innings in baseball. So this is towards the end of the game. The score is tied one-to-one. It's been one-to-one most of the game. So it's a, what that translates into is it's a boring game. This is the kind of game you wished you hadn't gone to. And if it's the bottom of the eighth, there are two outs, meaning you need three, and then that inning is over, and it goes to the very last inning. And Cody Bellinger is up at bat. Cody has been batting terribly. He is just barely over 200. He's in a bit of a slump. And currently, he has two strikes against him. With a third strike, you strike out. So there are two outs, two strikes with a a bad batter at the plate. This is not looking good, except for one thing. The bases are loaded. So the tension is there because this moment is, it's one-to-one. And if Cody swings and misses, which is highly likely that he's going to strike out, the game's going to go to the ninth inning tied one-to-one. And you know what that means. It's going to go to the 10th inning tied one-to-one, which means it's going to go to the 11th inning tied one-to-one. And you're looking at it like, oh, it's a long night. It's already been a boring game. Now it's about to be a long night, except the Dodgers load the bases and then Cody Bellinger comes up. There are two outs. He's got two strikes. You're sitting on the edge of your seat because you might get to go home early or you might be here for a long time. Here comes the pitch. It's a curveball. And this is the setting. It's tied one-to-one, bases loaded, and the pitch curveball comes to Cody Bellinger. get the point, right? (laughs) The score went from 1-1 to 5-1 in that instant. And everybody in the stadium, except the Giants fans, jumped to their feet instantly. They are high-fiving complete strangers. People that were Republicans and Democrats, male and female, different ethnicities, different languages, different ages. They were instantly unified under this one thing. One hit in one game, there's 162 games in the Major League Baseball season for the Dodgers, meaning that game is insignificant, really. It didn't matter that they really beat the Giants because the Giants are so bad right now. So the game is meaningless. The score, it just means you get to go home early. 
That's kind of what it meant. But they all jumped to their feet so excited because that's the moment. And they all recognized it instantly. And what I wanted you to see is how they all jumped up, how they all turned to each other, how they were high-fiving each other. They were hugging each other. They were instantly unified because they had one great thing in common. We won. We won. And here we are. We won. We won. We have inherited the promise that stops and says, it doesn't matter how bad I am. It doesn't matter all of my sins and how I struggle. This, this God has sent his son and he has just knocked it out of the park. He hit the home run. And at that point in time, we won. We won. Those stands didn't do anything. They didn't cause that game to be a win. Cody Bellinger hit that ball. They didn't do anything. We didn't do anything. That's the story of the New Testament. All that Cody Bellinger did in that clip meant that they got to go home early. What Jesus does in this clip means we have a home to go to. We get to go to eternal home in heaven and be in this relationship that God has pursued with us since the dawn of time. God loves you. He wants a relationship with you. He sent his son to die for you and he has done it all. High fives, jump up and down. We won. That's the story. That's the story of the New Testament. My dad passed away just a month, month and a half ago, and uh, my brother was finalizing his estate, and he didn't have a ton of money, but the last little bit of money that he had, he, he sent a check, and uh, we looked at the check. It wasn't a ton of money. Don't come to me for money, because I, I don't have it. Um, Eugenie and I looked at it, and we said, you know, my dad would have loved to have left an inheritance to his grandchildren. What if we don't take this money and we tell our kids it's for them? So we decided to do that. And one of the funnest days for me was to be able to reach out to my own children and say, hey, grandpa loved you. And grandpa has left an inheritance to you. He's giving you something. and, And I got to be the bearer of this really fun news that there's some money coming your way out of nowhere. How many of you would like that? I want to read in closing this last verse, a couple of verses out of Romans that Paul is talking about this concept of, of where we're at here. And this is verse 12 of Romans 10. And listen to what Paul says. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. Remember the high fives, we're all one in Christ. We are all together. That's what Paul's talking about. There's no distinction. We're no different. We're all the same family. We have all one. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. The same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. All who call on all who believe in him. He bestows his riches. He gives it out generously. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. But how are they to call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they're sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. How beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. People, this is what this church is about.
The reason we're in existence today is because us, the winners, the family members that high five each other, we're so excited by what we won that we created a church so that we would be those who would go out and tell the good news. Hey, your father left you an inheritance to our neighbors to our family, to our children, that we take on that great, great news and we are the messengers. We are the ones with the beautiful feet who bring good news to those who are hurting, who are broken, who desperately need it. That is what the New Testament is about. Have you read it? Spend some time in this book. It's nothing but beautiful, but it's also your assignment. If you don't know Jesus... Hopefully today you've had a clear example and a message of what the gospel is, what we mean when God sent his son to die for you. Make that move and simply reach out to him. Call upon the name of the Lord Jesus. But if you are saved, that next step, we talked about Peter when he says, repent. That idea that if you're living in sin at this point, that is not honoring the person who just hit the grand slam for you. Repent from that sin. It's better for you. It makes you a better messenger for others. We as a church exist to take this message forward into a community that so desperately needs to know of the love of God. That's why we're here. That's why the New Testament was written. Let me pray. Lord, I thank you. I thank you for the New Testament. Lord, I love the Old Testament, but I am so glad the New Testament followed it up. I thank you that you then put it all into a a manual, a handbook, and gave us scripture so that we would be able to have a grasp on what all of this means. That we would have sermons from people as simple as a thief that would understand that my brokenness just leads me to death and that you, Lord, bring me to life. Lord, I would ask that if there's anybody here who does not yet know you, that even now your spirit would be reaching out to them and they would hear your voice calling to them and that they in turn would call to you. Lord, for the rest of us who know you, who lean upon you, Lord, would you revive us in our sense of purpose, our sense of sentness, that we would be thinking even today of people that we could simply bring the good news to, that we would make it good news by how we live our life, we would make it good news by how we love you. And Lord, that we would make it good news by how we love our brothers. We love you, Lord. We thank you for this wonderful, wonderful New Testament. And we ask these things in your name. Amen.